Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live like Jesus. Amen. You know, it's a lot easier to get here, up here and uh, open the Bible to preach when the sermon has already been done for me. So, Joel Band, Pastor Jim, thank you so much. I am hoping, in a sense, just to follow along with those same themes, uh, those same ideas. And if you're new here, by the way, I should introduce myself. I'm Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here along with Jim at Journey Church. And if you are new, then you might not know, as many of you do, that we are closing in on the end of a series through the Sermon on the Mount. We have covered Matthew chapters 5 and 6. Today we are getting into chapter 7, the third and final chapter of the Sermon on the Mount. We'll be looking at the first six verses. So if you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, if you open it up to Matthew chapter 7. If you are new to the Bible and you don't know what you're looking at, be aware that there's a table of contents in the front. It'll help you find Matthew or the Gospel according to Matthew. The Bible, unlike every other book, doesn't page break when it goes to a chapter, so you won't find a blank space. You'll just find that big number seven situated in the page. So you're looking for the big number seven, and we'll start in verse one. Uh, and while you guys are turning there, I should point out that what we're going to cover today is if you're over 40 and you only have a cursory knowledge of the Bible, uh, this is probably one of the two verses you know. Uh, John 3.16, because that guy with the clown wig in every football game is in the back of the end zone. I don't know how he gets to so many on a Sunday morning, but he's always there with the John 3.16 sign. And then this passage that we're going to look at is the other one. At least it's the one I've had quoted to me the most from people who are not Christians, which you will see in a minute if you're, unless you're already there. Uh, this is a fairly well-known passage to judge not that we be not judged. So, given that, that many people have heard of this, but my guess is very few people actually know what it is that Jesus is unpacking or getting at here, uh, we've got some groundwork to do. So what we're going to do this morning is I'm going to read the text for us, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to start by situating our time together this morning by just making three basic observations about the text, and then we're going to unpack them. So that's sort of our order going forward. So here we go, Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, it will be, uh, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, and do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite! First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. Father in heaven, you are holy. As we have already sung and heard in our prayer and scripture reading, you are holy. And we acknowledge that before you, before you, we have no plea against your holiness within ourselves. But this morning, we express gratitude, we express thankfulness for your grace and mercy because we have only this one but very perfect plea that we believe in your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we have already sung that we long to see your kingdom come so that more people might know your mercy and your loving kindness. 
And so, Lord, I pray for myself that as I seek to uh, excavate this text for my friends, your people, who you have gathered here, that you would help us build our lives on this word about you, about your world, about ourselves, that you would teach us this morning. And so we pray these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, like I said, let's start with some observations. So observation number one is that this text follows, and this is pretty obvious, follows last week's text on anxiety. It's important to point that out to understand what's going on. Uh, We have been in the Sermon on the Mount, and it can be fairly easy to start viewing each of these texts as isolated segments of teaching disconnected from the rest of what's happening. But Jesus actually has putting together a sermon in a very intentional and structured way, and he moves through the sermon like a piece of music moves through different rhythms and themes uh, through, as it goes on. So the first movement of the Sermon on the Mount is the Beatitudes, which are statements about a person who lives a flourishing life before God, who lives in his kingdom. And Jesus presents in the Beatitudes a radically different view of human flourishing than we would expect. And then the second movement deals with the law and our need for Jesus to fulfill the law for us, that he has come to fulfill the law, not to abolish the law. And then we, in that section, we are called to live lives that take the physical law, that take, that take something we are to live with our bodies, and to bring it deep down into our hearts such that the law not only is something that we do and obey merely physically, but something that we love and are guided by from inside out. Movement three then considers the external or positive righteousness. So if the law is don't do this, don't do that, that's negative righteousness. You are being righteous by not doing something. Positive righteousness is things like spiritual disciplines, things we do to develop righteousness in us such that we should give joyfully. We should pray gladly, and we should fast we should, uh, we should engage in these things in a positive way, and we're developing in ourselves a positive disposition or a positive righteousness. But we should not do them for the eyes of man, but for the eyes and audience of God. And so now we move into movement four of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus recognizes that we live not in a black and white, cut and dried world. There are lots of laws where we go, I understand what he means here, but I don't know in a fallen world where things seem to be moving so fast and developing so fast, how to apply that? And Jesus says, I understand. Which is why this last portion of the Sermon on the Mount deals with wisdom. Wisdom is how do you live in the gray area, between the black and white, when things are not as clear-cut. And so moving into that, we see that he takes generalized truths, which we then must learn to apply appropriately. So if the last couple of weeks, Jim covered the transition then from movement three into movement movement four by thinking about how we treasure up the praise of man, how we fail to worship God alone, and must, must strive and seek to love God with a singularity of heart. And then... One of the reasons why we struggle to worship God alone is because we are short-sighted people who get so balled up with anxiety, worrying about our material needs in this world. And then in this passage, Jesus moves into how we disposition ourselves towards others in judgment. 
The connective tissue then between last week and this week is this. Last week we thought about inordinate concern for somebody, and this week we think about inordinate concern for somebody. The difference is last week we thought about faithless concern for ourselves. How I act like a practical atheist because my anxiety overrides what I say I believe about God. This week, we think about merciless concern for others. How when I stop thinking about myself and I set my eyes on you, good people, I tend, I tend to get a little judgy. And I don't give you the same mercy or the benefit of the doubt that I give myself. And I want to say this clearly, I think both of these things, both of these things hinder in as much as we can they hinder the progress of the gospel and the kingdom of God in our world. You know, we opened up this morning singing about the kingdom of God, and we need to ask ourselves, do we really believe what we sang? Do we really believe that the advance of the kingdom of God is important to us? Because that song is the bridge between last week and this week. If we're anxious about ourselves in the way Pastor Jim explained last week, we will act faithlessly, because our anxiety, it will display that we fail to believe about God what we say we believe about God. And the biting of our fingernails, the tossing and turning in our sleep, the struggle to trust will display a heart that does not have the adequate faith in God. But rather, we need to then pursue a posture of humble faith. Think about these two texts, Romans 8.28 and Ephesians 11.1-12. 1 and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glorious grace. If we think about those two things, then we see that God is working all things to the counsel of his will, and that if we are in Christ... He will work things for our good. Now, we might have a different definition of what our good is. We might have a different idea of where the counsel of God's will should lead him. But do we trust that God is, in fact, good? That he is, in fact, powerful to work his will in this world? If we don't internalize these truths, if we don't actually believe them, no one will give ear to anything else we say about God. We'll get to that in a little bit. There's much more that we could say about here, but Jim preached on this text last week, so you can go back and listen to his sermon on anxiety. But this week we consider, our first observation connecting those two together, this week we consider merciless reflection on others. Here's a second observation. There is an astonishing, uh, an astonishing warning in this text. Judge not that you be not judged. Now, grammatically speaking, that's called a divine passive, which means in that second phrase, you be not judged, there's an actor who is implied. That actor is God. Divine passive, he's implied. Uh, what that means, then, is we could rephrase Matthew 7-1 to say, you should avoid judging in order that you also avoid the judgment of God. Jesus then takes this passage and he applies the Roman doctrine of lex talionis, which we talked a little bit about in Matthew 5, 38 through 40. But that roughly means justice of the same kind or the law of retribution. 
So he says God will exact retribution or justice of the same kind as to what we have towards others. Now, there's a deep theological purpose here. In the Sermon on the Mount, it's sort of a constitution of God's kingdom. Uh, it tells us how to, how to go about our civic duties and to pursue the path of flourishing if we have immigrated from the kingdom of man and of self into the kingdom of God. How are we to act as new citizens of a new kingdom? Well, that's what the Sermon on the Mount is directing us at. And if we have transitioned into that kingdom, then we need to recognize that God is king. And therefore, we need to surrender to him the right and role of judgment. If we don't, God says he'll hold us as individuals to the same standard we have held others to. Which you might think, you know, that's not so bad, right? I mean, God's standard is holiness. My standard is just, I want people like my neighbors, my friends and family to just generally be good people. Seems like a lower standard. Easier bar to clear. Well, are you certain of that? I mean, we know that God requires holiness, but what is it exactly that we require? Let me ask you this. Imagine that God assigned you an angel at birth. Like, you know, a guardian angel, except for instead of a big flaming sword and a single-minded purpose to smote the spiritual forces of darkness, this angel is equipped with the angelic equivalent of a cell phone and a 13-year-old girl's ability to text. And on the, other, on the other end of that thread is God. And this angel follows you around throughout your entire life, and every time you make a moral statement about right and wrong, good and evil, wisdom and foolishness, this angel just pops it into the, into the text message and sends it off. And then at the end of your life, there is in one place a list of every moral statement you have ever made. This is how people should live. This is what people should be like. Why can't people just do this? Here's what's right. Here's what's wrong. Here's what's good. Here's what's evil. That was foolish. This is wise. And at the end of your life, God holds that up and says, you know what? Let's table the Ten Commandments. What if I just judge you by this standard? Would you pass? I'll tell you this, just in terms of honesty about myself, I would not. I have made judgments in haste. I have made judgments in foolishness. I have made judgments when I'm hot-headed and offended. I have made judgments out of a lack of knowledge and a lack of wisdom. I have made judgments about certain things simply because I didn't like the person doing it. Any of you? Maybe? Can I get an amen? There we go. Getting a witness. I have been capricious and mean, demeaning, quick-tempered in my judgments. Held to my own standard, I do not think I would pass. In fact, I'm willing to bet, though I can't think of a specific example, that there is probably a time in my life in which I have said a particular thing to do was objectively wrong, and then I bet you I've done it. And I bet you when I did it, I thought, here's why my case is different. Here's why I'm special. Here's the uniqueness of my situation. And yet, in none of my judgments against other people, do I generally take the time to think about what makes their situation unique. How they might have encountered a certain set of circumstances or situations that they feel have forced their hand. 
But let's take this a level deeper. Because it's actually not just that I can be a judgy person and that we can be judgy people. Think about this. When I issue, or when you issue, those injunctions about what's right or wrong, we do so without putting much of ourselves on the line. Yet God's standard of holiness is not met in my law-keeping. It's met in the law-keeping of another. You see, the gospel could be explained by describing it as atonement through imputation and expiation. That my sins are atoned for because God takes away from me the just judgment of those sins, takes my sins away from me, and he gives me someone else's law-keeping. In that way, God is both, as Paul says, the judge and the justifier. It is through the imputation or the transference of Christ's righteousness to me that I can stand in God's presence. In other words, when we think about judgment, whose judgment is really lighter? Mine or God's, my standard of goodness or his standard of holiness, if the one who judges must also be the justifier. You know, even after justification, by the way, even after I'm saved and my sins are atoned for, I still don't do this thing under my own power. Listen to this in Philippians 2, uh, 12 through 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. My standard of judgment, if it requires... Also, self-justification, I'm toast. In fact, this is, in a sense, a reverse of the beatitude at the beginning of the sermon to be merciful. Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So, too, we might be able to add to this beatitude, condemned are the unmerciful, for they will not receive mercy. You know, it turns out, What we'll sing at the end after my sermon is true. Who else could rescue me from all my failing? Who else could offer his only son? Who else invites me to call him father? Only a holy God. His standard might be higher, but he has helped and even made it so that I could clear it. God's holiness is lighter and a more gentle yoke because from eternity past, God decided the standard and the satisfaction of it. I have no such plan. Third observation about the text. There's a tension in it. Matthew 7, 1. Judge not that you be not judged. Matthew 7, 6. Don't cast your pearls before pigs. Don't give to dogs what is holy. Feels a little bit like, guys, don't judge. Except for those people over there, they're total pigs, dogs, unclean animals feels a little bit out of place. So we have to think about this. This is why I called this wisdom, is because what Jesus is getting at is not a hard, fast rule you never judge, but rather a gray area in which we have to understand and ask the question, what judgments would wisdom have us make? If we rightly hone our hearts and our heads by the power of the word and by guidance from the Holy Spirit, what judgments would they have us make? 
This points us to the need for spiritual discernment in our approach to others, whether they be brothers or, for the sake of not being insulting, not brothers. So those are our three observations. Now, with those three observations, I want to structure the rest of our time together. So I want to consider how faithful self-reflection enables merciful contemplation. In other words, how when we reflect on ourselves faithfully, can we then treat other people with mercy? And in fact, I would like to look at then, how can we actually be merciful? How do we develop mercy? And I would like to close by thinking about spiritual discernment, what it is and how we develop it. What is God calling us to do and how do we understand the two judgments being made here? So, if you're all tracking, here we go. By the way, that might be the longest introduction to a sermon I've ever preached. So, so let's talk about faithful self-reflection. Jesus told us about the need to reject the practical atheism of anxiety. But, he does not say we stop thinking about ourselves entirely. He does not say we're never to look inside. We are never to be critical. We are never to uh, examine Aristotle once said, the unexamined life is not worth living. Jesus is not contradicting that when he tells us to not be anxious. In fact, what Jesus is telling us to do is look at our lives and get below the service, get below the material. We need to seek out sin. We need to interrogate our motives and our desires. We need to live more and more as citizens of the kingdom of God rather than citizens of this world. And ultimately, citizens of two cities or citizens of two kingdoms are always distinguishable by their culture. So we have to ask ourselves questions. What culture do we fundamentally live in? And by the way, Jesus has been doing this throughout the Sermon on the Mount. He, in effect, has been checking our passport as he goes along teaching. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Are you in poor in spirit? Or do you think highly of yourself? Can I see your passport? The one who relaxes my commands will be least in my kingdom of heaven. Do you happen to relax my commands? Do you try and seek to water down their tension to temper them? Do you find complex avenues for disobedience rather than a hard but simple paths of obedience? If anyone looks at a woman with lustful intent... Do your eyes feed on desires I have told you are unworthy for citizens of my kingdom? Hypocrites love to be seen by others. Do you love to be seen by others? Is your righteousness just for show? Judge not. Are you judging him or her or them by a standard that you wouldn't pass either? Can I see your passport? You know, we live in a highly individualistic and narcissistic culture, which I think we all probably take for granted that that's true. But I don't know that we generally reflect on the fact that that highly individualistic, highly narcissistic culture is also extremely shallow. We are obsessed with ourselves, and yet we never go deeper than the skin, usually. In order to do what God, through Christ, is telling us to do here, we need to go deeper, which will require us to have courage. Because when the Holy Spirit goes to work on us, it will most likely not be pleasant. 
You know, we approach the Christian life as if Jesus wants to come in and he wants to renovate our entire lives. It's like he looks at our hearts, our minds, our desires, our wills, and he says, okay. And he brings in his hammers and he's like, I'm going to knock down some walls. I'm going to tear this thing out. I'm going to gut this place, but we're going to make it we're going to make it more beautiful. We are going to make it more flourishing. We are going to more, make it more aesthetically pleasing. And yet all of us approach the Christian life like we're hoping a fresh coat of paint and some throw pillows will do the trick. Like, don't look in the closet. We've just shoved stuff in there. It makes me think about my favorite part of C.S. Lewis's work, which is not anything that he wrote that was particularly academic. It's not his apologetics. It's actually the children's book, Voyage of the Dawn Treader. See, Voyage of the Dawn Treader introduces you to a character who's like prototypical C.S. Lewis character. His name is Eustace Clarence Scrub. By the way, C.S. Lewis, fantastic at first lines of books. There once was a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. Tells you everything you need to know about the character right there, right? He's not irredeemable. He only almost deserved it. But you know exactly who this kid is once you hear he, he almost deserved it. You know who he is. Now, Eustace, like many of C.S. Lewis's characters, is in need of an internal transformation. Something is wrong in his heart, and he finds his way into Narnia and onto a boat called the Dawn Treader. And the Dawn Treader has a particular task, but Eustace, one day in this voyage, finds himself on an island with a dragon's lair. And he encounters more treasure and wealth than he can ever imagine. And he doesn't think of himself as a particularly greedy individual, so he's not going to take all the treasure, but he does fill his pockets with the dragon's treasure. And then for reasons that, quite frankly, I forgot, he falls asleep. And he takes a nap. And when he awakes, he finds that he is himself now the dragon. And being a dragon has some benefits to it. He can fly around. Uh, he can help see things on the ship from very high altitudes. But more than anything else, it has drawbacks. Eustace isn't supposed to be a dragon. One day, Aslan, the Lion King and creator of Narnia, comes to Eustace. And he takes him away to a pool from a bubbling well. And he tells him that if he washes in the pool, he will be made clean and whole. There's just one caveat, he has to take off the scales. So Eustace the dragon looks at his sharp claws and he digs them in and he peels back the skin. It comes off easier than he thought it would. And he peels and peels and peels and then he sees the lump of skin on the ground and he thinks great and he approaches the well but he sees in the reflection of the well that he's still a dragon. So he takes his claws and he digs them in again and he peels and peels and peels but lo and behold he's still a dragon. And he does it again and he's still a dragon and so at once, Aslan says to him, it has to be me. I have to do the work. And here is the words that Lewis puts into the mouth of Eustace when he explains what happened to his friend. The very first tear he made, speaking of Aslan, was so deep I thought it had gone right to my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. Well, he peeled that beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I had done myself those other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, so much darker and thicker and ever more knobby than the others had been. 
and there I was, smooth and soft, as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Aslan's paws inflict upon Eustace a severe mercy. They cut to the heart so that he may be made whole. And this is the kind of work that we need to do. We need to develop the discipline of spending meaningful time in God's word, maybe taking small portions and just pouring over it, asking it, interrogating it, questions about ourselves. What do you have to tell me that I need to repent of? Where can you show me where I am not meeting the standard of Christ? We will only do that if we trust that in those same words in the texts of Scripture, we will see in them the way in which we might be redeemed. That as we, as we allow our Lion of Judah, rather than some mythical Lion of Lewis's creation, if we allow Christ the Lion of Judah to inflict the same severe mercy on us, that he might get his claws into us and peel back the layers of scaly serpentine flesh, that we might see who we actually are. That he might reveal us as cleaner and smoother, but probably much smaller than we had initially thought. We might be afraid of this, but we'll find in those same texts that whatever we confess and repent of, we have also been pardoned of. Many of us are unwilling to do this, though. We're unwilling to let the Holy Spirit actually make us holy. And so we don't take seriously the historic nature of the Christian faith, the theological nature of the Christian faith, the need to actually enter into a process of discipleship to the extent that we see and pay the cost of what it takes to follow Jesus. Thinking about this, one writer at the turn of the century said, My point is that the world did not tire of the church's ideal, but of its reality. The monasteries were not impugned for the chastity of the monks, but for the unchastity. Christianity was not popular, was unpopular not because of its humility, but because of the arrogance of Christians. Certainly if the church failed, it was largely through churchmen. It's through you and I failing to actually take seriously the ideals that Christ lays out, which is why so many people hate the church. He closes with this. The church's ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. Do we have the courage to try it? Because if we do, I'll tell you this. Quoting from Paul. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ. We need a godly introspection to contrast our shallow and self-obsessed world. And that will only happen if we take seriously the words of Scripture. And with our Bible open and our hearts bowed down, we seek about some formative work. By the way, it is in that that we will become merciful. The process of pursuing confession and repentance, of taking hold of our sin, bringing it before God, and hearing his pardoning words for it, that process, because it is continuous, because it is ongoing, reminds us of our constant need for God's love and kindness, grace and mercy. And when we are in constant reminder of how God has been loving and gracious to us, how could we be anything but loving and gracious with those around us? 
You see, we are a forgetful people. If you read the Old Testament, you will find that the most frequent command in Scripture is actually to remember. To remember who you are and what God has done. To remember where you came from and what he is doing in you. We will learn, if you look at the Old Testament, you will learn that we are a people in need of reminders to remember. We're like people to set an alarm in order to not forget to set an alarm to make sure we get where we're going on time. This is because we often forget the work of Christ. We forget the work of the Spirit, what he has done in us, how far we have come. Not just where we are today. I think so often one of the reasons why we judge and why we're not merciful is we hold who I am today as the standard for Christianity. And so you might have just converted yesterday, but you don't measure up. I never think about the fact that I've been following Jesus for quite a while. And man, I was messed up when he came and found me. We have to remember what he's doing in us in the work of repentance, the process of rooting out sin, bringing it to God, confessing it, produces mercy. Look at the parable that Jesus actually tells here in Matthew 7, 3 through 5. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Notice in that text, the process of repentance is a process of log examination and removal. And once the log is out, it's not silent, letting everything go, it's all fine. Once the log is out, you are then capable of seeing clearly so that you too can help somebody correct their vision, that you can help remove the log or the speck from your friend's eye. This is where many people who quote this text without knowing its background get it wrong. Tim Keller, pastor for a long time in New York, said most people that he ran into understood the text to mean you should never negatively evaluate behavior. You should never tell people they're wrong. At that moment, you're telling a person that they're wrong for judging behavior negatively, which means you're doing the very thing you said you're not supposed to do. But no. The shortcoming that Jesus says the log-eyed brother has is that he's unable to help his brother remove the speck. He's a hypocrite not because he wants the speck out of his brother's eye, but because he hasn't taken the log out of his own first. He can't help his vision is blurred and impaired. Mercy is not concerned with silence while our brothers and sisters in Christ struggle with seemingly small sins or hindered spiritual vision. And I want to note this because this is the importance of the church. This is the importance of being known in a place, of being a participant in a place of worship. Who's going to help you take the specks out of your eye if nobody knows your name? Who can see the specks in your eye if nobody knows your life? The entire New Testament assumes we are in this thing together. It assumes that we're rubbing shoulders closely enough to where you can speak to me if I speak too harshly to my children. You can go, hey, you might have a speck in your eye about that. 
where if there's a problem in your marriage, I might be able to see it because I've seen how you interact with your wife. Or where if you're missing an opportunity where God has placed you, that that might be able to be corrected. In fact, this is one of the reasons why we often can be just as shallow and self-obsessed as our own world. We live these sequestered and isolated lives that are curated and crafted so that we only know the best in each other. We make conscious decisions about what we're comfortable with other people knowing. Even to the extent of making conscious decisions about what, they're, what we're comfortable they're knowing is wrong with us. And so we even curate our confessions and our prayer request lists to keep anybody from actually know what's going on. Again, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's been tried and found hard. On that same note, we can look at verse 6, and we can start to sort out what's going on here. Jesus talks about brothers, familial language, which indicates participation in the family of God. That's why I was just talking about the church. But then in verse 6, he pivots. Do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. Now, it would be an odd comment to be directed into the household of God, something about dogs or pigs. Dogs or pigs, to a Jewish audience, are unclean animals. So, to refer to somebody as a dog or a pig, you are implying they are outside of the household of God. So, if verses 1 through 5 dealt with brothers, family, church, he's now turning his direction towards how do we think towards those outside of the church? How do we think about those who don't proclaim the Christian faith? What do we do with them? Well, a simplistic reading would be that we withhold, in this text, whatever is holy or our pearls. We keep it from them. Given the use of pearls in the New Testament, by the way, whenever Jesus talks about a pearl, he's almost always talking about the gospel. However, we know that something, again, has to be at play here. Because this would run in direct contradiction to the mission God has given the church to say, don't put the gospel before non-believers. There must be some nuance that we need to pick up on. And again, going back to this text being wisdom literature... It means that there's something going on in the images at play that we need to understand. It seems to me that the best reading is that we need to be tactical in our role as Christians. That we have been placed in the lives of neighbors and friends and family who do not yet believe or know or proclaim the name of Jesus. That God has placed us there to be salt and light, but that if we try and execute that role in a tactless fashion, using the gospel as interruptions rather than the natural language with which we speak, we will be a hindrance to people understanding and grasping the gospel. Think about this. This is 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not all meaning the sexually immoral of the world, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or the idolaters. Since then, you would have no need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality, or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunker, or swindler. 
not even to eat with such a one. So this is the key. He has said, I told you not to associate with these people. I didn't mean non-Christians. I meant people who were proclaiming the name of Christ and yet not surrendering their old ways of living. You still need to live in the world. So he says this, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? What ethic or moral code would I offer an outsider? My ethics and moral code is built on a foundation of Jesus. So if you don't believe in Jesus, what do I have to offer you? What judgment would I, what standard would I hold you responsible for? It is not those inside the church whom, or is it not those inside the church whom we are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So Paul says, how we judge, the spiritual discernment we need to judge, is that we need to understand what the life of a Christian is supposed to look like and what the proclamation of a Christian is. And when those two things don't line up, we now have the spiritual discernment to bring somebody up and to think about how do we approach a brother? How do we judge them? What needs to happen? And by the way, notice he talk, the way he talks assumes that they have already been called to repentance. So this isn't, I just found something out, we're going to bring somebody up and do church discipline in front of the whole church. This assumes a process in which somebody has been sinning. That sin was visible, it was known, it was addressed, and it is still unrepented of. In which case, Paul is saying, you need to put him out of the church in order to show him that he's of the world. But those outside in the world who aren't claiming they're in the church, do not hold them to your same standard. In effect, then, we could think about this. What if you have a friend who isn't a Christian? Let's assume they just live however they want with no regard for anybody, and one day you talk to them about it. It's likely that they'll be mildly offended. So you think you're better than me? Who are you to tell me how to live? Etc., 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 right? Pearls before pigs. Part of a tactful and strategic evangelism, though, is understanding the nature of who you are talking to. It must account for the person as a unique individual, loved by God and you. So you must consider what are the inroads that you can make with that specific person when you talk to them. This means, by the way, that just as we must be involved in the lives of each other, we must be involved in the lives of others outside of the church. We have to build friendships with them in order to know where are the best inroads for the gospel. We have to know them, know how to pray for them. And it simply won't do to avoid them by saying, well, evangelism isn't my gift. I want to say this, I'm, I'm mindful of not wanting to, as Jim says, beat the sheep. So let me point out that I am here too. I'm preaching to you as much as I'm preaching to myself. And quite frankly, I'm not here to tell you you aren't doing enough or to finger wag at you because I don't know. I don't know if you're evangelizing or not. But here's what I do know. People in our towns, in our neighborhoods, and potentially in our own families are perishing because they have not heard the gospel. And what I know is that the resources of the, ch of the churches of Tucson make that reality ridiculous. 
And I know that the Great Commission was not given to professional clergymen, but to those with a hodgepodge of occupational pursuits. Fishermen, tax collectors. If the command to make disciples is up to Jim and myself and our other friends who are pastors at other churches, guess what? It's not going to happen. Now, maybe you're thinking, I know, I know, I know, but it's so awkward sometimes to share the gospel. Well, let me close by giving you the thoughts of a pretty hardcore atheist about evangelism. For context, what I'm about to read to you uh, was when it took place after a uh, public event in which the speaker performed, was doing a performance, and he called a gentleman up on stage to be a part of the performance for a little while, and that gentleman, after the performance, uh, approached him to share the gospel and give a Bible to him. And this guy was a fairly well-known atheist, so people thought that he would kind of like chew him out or, or uh, get in his face about something or just mock him. Uh, and so he went online uh, to say this afterwards when people were confused about his response. He said, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or getting eternal life, and you think it's not really worth telling them this, because it would make, it would make it socially awkward, an atheist who think people shouldn't proselytize, who, just say, who say, just leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize to them? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and to not tell them that? I mean, I believe beyond a shadow of, if I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe me that a truck was bearing down on you, at a certain point, I tackle you. Because it's more important than that. This quote's a number of years old now, but along with the love of God which saved me, it has been something that has motivated my evangelism. I do not think that I can love somebody in the kingdom of, into the kingdom of heaven apart from the Holy Spirit, but I will tell you this, I quite literally would rather be damned before my lack of love keeps somebody from it. So friends, let's be reflective about our struggles with the word open and our hearts bowed down. Let's be merciful with each other as a witness to the kingdom of God, to the outsiders. And let us strive to love our non-believing friends and family and neighbors so that they might hear the good news of the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ its King. And right now, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gospel which saves us. I have no other plea before you but the life, death, and resurrection of your Son. And Lord, I long for this world to know that. As we sang at the beginning, may your kingdom come that everyone may know your name. Father, I pray for myself, knowing that I fall short on this, and I pray for my friends gathered here. May we be a people that proclaims your gospel boldly and still skillfully, and still strategically, that you might use us where you have placed us by your providence 
that the gospel might go to our friends and our family and our neighbors and our community. As Pastor Jim prayed for us this morning, that we would long for our political leaders even to hear your gospel and be obedient to your commands, and that will not happen unless someone opens their mouth and says so. So would you work in us to give us the courage to come to your word and to take your word to others. We pray all of this in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.